Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast, where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income, and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach, and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest, and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. G'day, welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast with me, Pete Wargent. I'm here with Stephen Moriarty. G'day, Steve. Hey, Pete. How are you? I'm really good. Thanks for asking because last week you didn't even have the politeness to check on how things are going. So I'm very well, thanks. How about yourself? I knew it was miserable <laughs> and I didn't want to rub it in how good it is here. <laughs> uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, get me, get me back to Queensland. Had enough of these bloody lockdowns. So today we are doing episode four in our mini-series on bubbles. What are the results of bursting bubbles? So, Steve, the most damaging bubbles are, I guess, often those where there's some kind of a link with the banking system. So um, credit bubbles bursting, um, and they can, I guess, in some uh, respects, be more socially and economically damaging what about tech bubbles? Is that a different situation uh, where you've got uh, tech stocks that get bid up and then crash? Is there less fallout or less collateral damage? Yeah, usually the one thing that is, is I you know I sort of remind people is that bubbles have good and bad consequences. It's a little bit like um, you know Nassim Taleb talking about the black swan. What a lot of people don't realise is. The black swans are subjective, you know, so, and he uses the example of saying, well, you know, for the people in the World Towers, 9-11 was a black swan, a negative black swan, but it wasn't a black swan for the terrorists because they knew what was going to happen and they saw that as a positive. So there's there's ups and downs to every bubble. Um, as you said, the, the, the big ones are the financial bubbles. They're the ones that really damage a lot of society broadly, whereas the the other sort of bubbles are the majority are the tech bubbles. And so usually, you know, the 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 benefit that came of, of the 2000 bubble was that we had an enormous amount of infrastructure that was then really cheap. That was the sort of launch pad to provide really cheap internet access. And so what eventually, well, what came around was that you know, someone paid bubble prices to install these huge, you know, networks and lines and that sort of stuff. But then when the bubble burst and the debts had to be written off, the ending result was someone spent, you know, billions of dollars building this infrastructure and then someone came along and gave them pennies in the dollar for it and eventually then said, well, instead of charging customers a buck, for the internet, we can charge them 10 cents. And so naturally enough, that leads to cheaper uh, internet, leads to greater usage. So it's, you know, it's not all bad in that sense. I mean, personally, you know, like I see people 
right, oh, you know, this is really terrible. We had a, you know, a down week on the market, but I'm short generally. So I sort of look at it and go, no, that's not a bad day for me. That's a good week. It depends where you where you sit. But generally, tech bubbles are not too bad because they can they can have some productivity gains, whereas the financial system bubbles are really bad because like 07 and 08, it, because of the interconnectivity these days of the global economy, when the US sneezes, everyone gets a cold. So, you know, ups and downsides, but generally in the short term, there's there's more downside than upside. Yeah, so look, we we know markets go in cycles, but do you, I mean, how many how many bubbles do you actually need to see before you get an understanding of them, or is everyone different? I guess like nobody, none of us like losing money. We've all had a good go at it at various points in our journey, and uh, every market has winners and losers. And I guess we over time you do learn about mean reversion, but is there a number of bubbles you have to see before you get better understanding of how and why they exist? I think there's two parts to it. The, the, the real experience of a bubble is actually being in a bubble. Um, that's when you really get to, to experience the full gamut, if I can put it to you that way, of the emotional responses to bubbles. When the market's bubbly, people tend to check their, their value, uh, their, the value of their portfolio a lot more, you know, um, than when the market's going down or when the market's not doing much. Naturally enough, why? Because you get excited, you know, you, you're making more money. It's really a matter of not a number of bubbles, but a, a, just a general experience about rising and falling prices and volatility is really the lesson. It's, you know, as, we, as I often say, what you've got to do when you're teaching people about the stock market is get them to feel what it's like to lose money without actually losing money. So, it's again, it's a little bit like saying to the child, you know, don't touch the stove because it'll burn you. Well, you know, you don't know the pain of the burn until you actually touch the oven or the, the stove top. So in that sense, I mean, I, I think really you just need one, you need one bubble if you're in the bubble. If you're not in the bubble, then generally I suspect you're either an extremely conservative investor or you're a, an older, wiser investor who's been through a bubble. But generally, I reckon one is good enough to give you the, the full impact of the, of the effects of it. Yeah, and also there's a certain thing. It's not all just about the price. It's just, just seeing that psychology firsthand, you know, the mania of everybody talking about an asset class and it's headline news that everybody's, you know, either in or they're missing out. And you know, they're, they're, I guess there's something just about the, the mentality of people in the peak of a, a boom cycle that it it really does catch a light and it's, it's something to behold. But you can only really get first-hand experience of it if you're, if you're, I guess, if you're actually within the bubble, so to speak. But like you said the other day, um, you know, when people talk about the Canberra bubble and so on, it, I guess if you're... If you're in the midst of it, you, 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 it's hard to actually sort of. <laughs> it's hard to get a sense of yeah. how crazy things can can get. And uh, look, we saw. Uh, I think it was it, you know the mind plays tricks, but I think it was 2017 where we got the peak of property investor lending, and uh, the the regulator essentially stepped in with some 
dramatic measures just to stop it, basically, because it was it was literally week week on week you were seeing more investors come into the market, and you know you, you could go to an auction and there might be a, a hundred people there. You know, it just it was just getting full on, and um, the the regulator quite quickly stepped in and 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 ended ended the cycle. But um, yeah, it's actually when you're in the midst of it, you know, it's just something else and. I guess you only really see that if, you, if you're up there, up close to it. The results vary, you know, as they sort of say with the asterisks. Um, past results won't be future returns, mainly because it, it gets down to where you are as an individual. If you bought low, then you can even survive a bubble and still come out the other end. Um, you know, if you buy at a dollar and the bubble goes to five bucks and then it goes back to three dollars, or $2.50, well, you've still done all right if you bought it a dollar. The problem is where you get in and where you get out, and that's where the, the pain is sort of felt on an, on an individual level. Um, what you usually find is, and this is where I think the real problem is, is for young, inexperienced investors who get into a bubble and borrow money or, you know, do really stupid things with these, you know, with these transitory profits, um, and then the bubble bursts. That again, part of the problem is if the if the bubble deflates slowly, you get a position where a lot of people say to you, "Oh well, you know, it's gone from five dollars to two dollars fifty. Oh, this is a great opportunity to you know buy the dip, so to speak." And so again, that's where the long term indicators like mean reversion and stuff don't they don't tell you a story. They just simply give you a number. And so what you often find is that the all the players want the bubble to continue because everybody's making money. So, you know, who wants someone like the prudential regulator to come in over the top and, you know, stop prices from rising? I mean, it's, you know, the reality is most people look at it and go, well, that's terrible. What you usually find is the bubbles go on longer than you think and, of course, you know, the, the, the worse it gets because nobody's actually trying to pull the punch bowl away. Some of the regulators did quite a good job in terms of the property market to, to cool it down. But, again, you know, as we talked about in the, the previous sessions, every asset's got to be held by somebody and that means that somebody bought that asset at some price. So, you know, I see. So, yeah, I can, I can remember quite clearly a couple of auctions in Sydney thinking, gee whiz, you know, even I, I remember a couple of uh, auctions on terraces in the eastern suburbs and going like 500 grand over where, where you might have appraised it. And I was thinking, well, either the bank's going to not value up this property or somebody's got a lot of equity. But yeah, when, when the, uh, and the regulators stepped in. I mean, you could effectively wipe that 500 of frost straight off it. And look, that's fine if you were the person who bought, you know, if you bought at 1 million and, you know, the, the market goes from three and a half back to three. But if you're the person who paid three and a half, it's not much fun. So, uh, yeah, it, it, a lot comes back to where you get in and where you get out. I think a really good place for people to start when it comes to leverage is if, if you're taking on personal debt, to actually just work on the assumption that you've actually got to pay that back one day. I think one of the things I've noticed in the when markets get really hot, 
people just they forget about the aspect of repayment and they're just working on the assumption that well you know when the price goes up in the future you know i'll just sell the property and you know i'll extinguish the debt the debt then but you should always start with can i actually afford you know can i afford to make these repayments because if you can't then that's uh well it's asking for trouble frankly yeah, it's what we were talking about in the last episode where we said, you know, it comes back to this really boring question, what's my risk? You know, the problem is in bubbles, the risk melts away and people only see the reward. And so that's where it, it creates a real problem. And again, if the if the regulator, not the regulator, sorry, if the banks are incentivised to lend, you know, which is understandable. I mean, God, that's where they make their profit. Of course, they're going to want to, you know, lend as much as possible. What that leads to is higher prices. The prices go higher and higher. And as you say, people forget about, you know, I know interest rates are low, but that still doesn't mean you're going to get a great return over the next 10 or 20 years. It just means that you might be able to handle the repayments. But unless there's you know, unless you're compounding a return, you're not actually you're not actually making anything. The sort of the old saying is, you know, the worst loans are made in the best times, and it's really there's this real pattern that you can see about how these bubbles form, and basically they form the same way, which is you you know you get increased debt, you get increased marketability, you know, all of these sort of things that then start to fly out the window. And then what happens is, of course, you get the same thing on the downside, but it can just take longer than it, it, it sort of appears to take. Um, so what you end up with is a lot of oversupply that's a result of all the capital that was being pouring in. And as you know, we talk to we talk to our clients about this in the capital cycle theory, you know, where money rushes in because it appears to be easy money. Um, And then, of course, when it peaks and reality kicks in that, you know, maybe Tesla's not going to make every single electric vehicle in the world, the company, sorry, is not worth what its PE ratio is or what its valuation is, that's when you get the, the bleed of the downside. And what you end up with is in a lot of ways, and this is one thing I'm always sort of harping on about is, You've got to recognise the interconnectedness of everybody, you know, and I think, you know, in this year of COVID, that's what I'm sort of saying to people. You know, it only takes one or two irresponsible people to spread the virus and suddenly there's a whole raft of people in hospital and it's a little bit like that with debt, you know. You can, whether you borrow for stocks or property or Bitcoin or anything like that, as you said, you've got to pay that money back. The risky bit of it is you've got to try and predict over 20 to 25 years, are you going to have the capacity to pay that that debt back? Um, Because as I think we mentioned in the earlier episodes, normally debt was only went for about five or 10 years. You know, it was very rare that you could go to the bank and say, can I have a 25-year loan? The result at the end is based on where your personal circumstances are, but it's, it's really the 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 broadness of it and the reason why we've had probably more bubbles of late throughout the globe is because of that greater interconnectedness and like you and I talk about you know it, it 
you would look at it now and go, oh, well, that doesn't matter if the US is in a bubble. That doesn't mean anything for Woolworths or it doesn't mean anything for, you know, realestate.com or Afterpay or something like that. But the reality is that it does because, you know, you then find out that financing is via US banks or, you know, all these sort of things that we didn't realise in 08 and then suddenly in 08 and 09 when the thing had crashed, we then recognised that we were all tethered to the US banks. The result was the, the you know, what do they call it, the Great Recession. That was a lot of downside for a lot of people. I suppose the, the important event is lots of people get damaged by a one-off event, you know, a, a sort of personal black swan if they get left with an enormous margin loan um, or an enormous property debt where they're going to have to sell down and lose, you know, a substantial portion of their money to repay the debt. So, you know, they can be they can be very, very damaging from that aspect. Yeah, working on the premise that markets do go in cycles and you mentioned their potential overinvestment in some sectors, but presumably um, on the downside then, if, when the survivors emerge from the rubble after the downturn and the implosion, that, that's presumably where you want to look in the, uh, the spirit of Dave Drayman and others over the years. You know, that's why I was saying before, there's good and bad bits and it depends on, you know, where you are personally um, because what you do see, this is what the, the capital cycle theory shows, um, just while I think of it, Pete, uh, Edward Chancellor wrote a book called Capital Returns, um, which I highly recommend, which talks about the capital cycle theory. Um, and so if you want to read about it, I, I highly recommend it. But, yeah, uh, you know, at the moment, oil is cheap, uh, energy is cheap, the capital cycle's over, uh, there's, you know, companies going bankrupt, um, you know, debts are being called in, um, the oil price has declined. And so, again, you just get this cycle that, that goes for that goes for an extended period of time, but always ends up in a sense with cheap assets. Um, you know, Draymond, uh, Jim Rogers, you know, Warren Buffett, um, the best investors survey the wreckage and pick over the bones of who's left, you know, and that's where Buffett has been really skilled in, in two parts. One is recognising which companies are strong and will survive and then buying more of them when they're cheap. You know, in, in that way, he's been really, really clever. He, you know, hence the reason why he builds his cash pile because he understands that there's, you know, everything's bubbly. Well, it's it's going to stop. You know, there will be an opportunity that comes along. The one who wins is the one who's got the most cash that can take advantage of the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. I mentioned actually last week uh, <coughs> that, um, yeah, with uh, the, the stock market looking so bloody expensive at the start of 2020, I was pretty much out of stocks and I missed the downturn. But by choosing to, to buy an investment property, that, that's depleted my cash pile. So uh, the person with the deepest pockets, uh, like the Buffets of the world, who really take advantage when post-implosion, because as you said, um, in this cycle, there's a lot of wasted resources and capital you know, a lot of blame shifting, but it's the person who can uh, pick through the turmoil that, that makes the really big compounding returns in stocks. Now, I, I mentioned uh, way back in one of the earlier episodes about uh, some early life lessons learned 
you know, losing money through gambling and so on. And I think, you know, trying to look back objectively, which is quite hard to do when you're talking about, you know, a teenage self um, and uh, especially like a lot of young men uh, full of confidence, uh, you know, uh, especially after a couple of drinks and so on. But I look back and think, you know, m- maybe there was there was no other way with gambling um, to learn the lesson. And I'm sure it's the same for investors to, to, to a certain degree, that there's nothing like losing a painful chunk of money or profits or whatever it is to actually teach you that lesson. You know, you have to... You have to be burned by by an experience to to learn that lesson. Is that the same in stocks and particularly with regard to stock market bubbles? The reality is, yeah. I mean, the older I get, the more I realise that you know the 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 old um, you know you can't put old heads on young shoulders is really really pertinent. You just can't experience something physically or or even you know psychologically until you actually experience it. Um, most of the uh, older investors will tell you whether you do it, you know, by yourself or whether you're a fund manager or whether you're a financial advisor, most of us have lost a bucket of money at some stage where it's taught you the lesson of what you shouldn't do in the markets. There's a lot of emphasis on, you know, again, the reward side. You've got to get in quick and you've got to do this and you've got to do that. And what, um, you know, again, what uh, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger talk about is not doing the dumb stuff and basically sort of saying, look, if you don't do dumb stuff, you'll do fine. And that's why we say to people as well, look, don't worry about the upside. You know, generally we know the market goes up, so you should be all right. What you want to worry about is the big, the big downside hits. And so on that perspective, um, Nassim Taleb talks about, you know, this in, uh, I think it's in Anti-Fragile, he talks about, you know, um, via negativa and basically says, you know, what you want to do is avoid those asymmetrical risks where there's not that much upside and there's a lot of downside. Um, and that's what's going on at the moment. Um, and most of the mistakes you make, are of that sort of nature where you forget about the probabilities and the possibilities of, you know, having a really, really big loss. Um, And again, it it gets back to the emotional or the psychological stuff, which is really, I mean, you can see it at the moment, you know, lots of people are boasting about, you know, they're buying, they bought Bitcoin and, you know, they've made lots of money in Tesla, um, you know, all of those 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 old things about those old standards, you know, like I'm clever, it's not a bull market, no, it's not a bubble, um, you know, because I read such and such and, you know, they've been in the market and they said it's not a bubble. Most of the people who say it's not a bubble are people under 40. Most of the people who say it is a bubble are the people over 60. And that comes down to experience. And to be quite honest, Pete, younger players in the market have a huge following and they're you know they're they're preaching for their own benefit there's that aspect of it as well plus also too you know if you've got a hundred million or two hundred million you can talk bubbles all you like because if you lose half your money you've still got you know you're still a multi-millionaire the problem is you find 
and I find this a lot, you know, you've got to take account of people's wealth in the sense of saying to them, if I said to that person, this is not a bubble, stay in, and that person loses 50% of their wealth, well, you know, you've got to take some sort of responsibility for that. There is the sort of caveat emptor part, but if you know about human psychology and you know about your own, you know, capacity to influence people, then it's pretty uh, irresponsible to look at bubbles through, you know, various means such as valuations or psychology um, and say, no, 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 this time it's different. I mean, the reality is older people like myself and others will say to you, it's never different. It might go on longer, absolutely, but it's never different. You know, this is what humans have been doing for a lifetime, you know, over eons of being alive and since markets have been in place. You know, we had a we had a South Sea tulip bubble, what, I don't know, I can't remember, 300-odd years ago. You know, this is how long it's been going on. Um, and so it's a really, it really boils down to the, the old adage, you know, of fear and greed. Um, yeah. and well, I guess we're all uh, intuitively, we all want to make returns and generate wealth. But I, I think you touched on the key word there. Sometimes it's worth remembering that the, the seven deadly sins there and greed being one of them. But, you know, one of the things you realise as you get a bit older is that hubris is never a good thing because uh, the world has an interesting way and it's the same in sport it's, it's the same in markets the world has a funny way of biting you on the arse if you if you get too cocky and uh, yeah yeah the markets in particular can be a great leveler yeah just you know you and I love cricket and I was just thinking the other day you know how we skittled India in the second test you know for 36. And then it was like, oh, we're all geniuses and aren't we fantastic? We're going to kill this mob. They're hopeless. And, of course, you know, the next test comes out and then the Indians beat us and beat us, you know, convincingly. So it's it's a sort of, you know, the hubris and the greed stuff is where you want to work on your portfolio, not on the downside. Because as, as we've said, watch the downside. And investing when the earnings yield is at 10%, is a hell of a lot different to investing in the earnings year when it's at one or one and a half percent in a bubble. You know, it's just, it's just not really worth it. Painful, absolutely, but it's still, you know, you find out in the end, um, unfortunately for most painfully, that it's it's not worth it. You know, so they're sort of best avoided. But you know, it's hard to do. It's hard to avoid a bubble. Yeah, one day you're cock of the walk, the next a feather duster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't even remember who said that, but it was uh, some somebody wittier than me. It was a yeah, yeah, famous quote. So I guess in wrapping up, yes, market cycles will always exist, and some bubbles will cause more damage than others. Probably those with excessive lending and where there's high debt involved are probably the most damaging. Maybe a tech tech boom and bust, maybe less damaging, maybe very damaging for certain individuals, but less systemic potentially. But the, I guess the thing to remember is that after the implosion and when the damage is done, yeah, look, there could be, you know, some damage in terms of distrust of management and all of that stuff, but there will be 
cheap stocks for survivors. And that is the upside, I guess, of the capital cycle theory that after the implosion, there'll be survivors. And that's where you want to look for investments. And I guess the the big lesson for investors, as you touched on there, is that there's nothing really like losing a heap of money to uh, teach you a lesson the hard way. You know, it's it's what makes investing tremendously satisfying, but also tremendously terrifying at the same time. You know, it um, it's very thrilling. And it took me years to actually work out, you know, when the, the older guys that I used to say, and, and I think Buffett or I think it might have been Howard Mark said, you know, good investing should be boring. It's so true. You know, it, it it's boring. And by boring, it means it's fairly non-emotional. You know, you make money and you lose money and then you make money and you have a think about it. Whereas, you know, as you know, in bubbles, everybody's drunk at the party and we're all having a great time. So, you know, who wants to be bored? It's one of those things where ultimately I think you've got to experience it. So long as you survive, you'll probably have some, you know, very fond memories some will be scared away and tell you that the stock market's a casino, but um, generally, if you stick at it, you'll uh, you'll do fine. Brilliant. So that's it for today. Thanks for joining. So uh, we've sadly, Steve, we've only got one more episode left in our mini series on bubbles. So next week we're going to touch on future bubbles, and I think you're quite a pertinent observation that you made, and that uh, was uh, Gal Braith saying that financial memory only lasts maximum of 20 years and it's it's uncanny isn't it we're 20 years on from the tech bubble and here we are again plus i guess the other thing is you will always get a new generation of investors coming through so we will get bubbles again and we'll discuss next week whether they're all the same and um you know what can we expect to see in the future and whether will it be different next time so thanks again steve always enjoy your insights and experience and uh Look forward to joining you all next week. Cheers. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. Just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, And we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter, so do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers. Cheers.